Well, tonight I have a special treat for you. If you would take out this red book, and for the first time ever, would you crack open a fresh deck? You have brand new Bibles. Yay! We knew some of you were cheating, so we had to change the card decks out there. No. These, you know what's neat about these? Turn to the very back. Look what it's got. Big numbers. 895. I won't have to say every week that's number 32 in the back of your Bible. So uh, we just went through that. Tonight, we're going... <laughs> Isn't it funny what pastors get excited about, I tell you. We're going to be uh, taking a look at the church and particularly the role of the church. The very first week, if you weren't here, we were talking about the different views of eschatology. Somebody remember what does eschatology mean? Right, last things, end times. Every religion has an eschatology. Uh, secular culture has an eschatology. The eschatology is that this world finally... And the sun uh, flashes a helium flash into a supernova. We're consumed. Everything finally uh, settles down to absolute zeros. The universe drifts farther and farther apart forever. That's the eschatology of science, of how it will all end. Uh, we believe that, nope, nope, if you were just going to connect the dots, that's true. But the God who's already in the future is telling us. He's not predicting this. He's telling us because he's looking in the future and we're over here saying, let me tell you what's coming at you. We're on this side of the tunnel, he's on both sides, and he sees where the train is at, even though there's a bend in the middle of it saying, trust me on this one. So tonight we're going to be taking a look at one of the players. Remember the last days means really since the resurrection of Christ and the Pentecost experience. Peter said in Acts, this is not a fulfillment of Joel, in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Interesting too, Joel points out men and women both have the role of prophet. Uh, which, even in the Old Testament, people don't realize how radical that was, that God would be using all people. But, we take a look at here, what happens to the church? So, in the very last act, we've, uh, remember how many churches, you were here with Roger, how many churches are there in the book of Revelation? Seven. Very good. Uh, how many good churches? Very good. Four. What? Four. What are the good churches that have that? They don't have just condemnation against them. There are ones that have commendation, as he pointed out, probably, and condemnation likewise. And there are those that have just the uh, bad things against them. But if I was going to have seven candle stands up here, <laughs> but you can just visualize this. And remember, Christ is walking amongst them, and he's telling them, hey, get it together, get it together. And then there's this great uh, look at what's going to happen. Some of the major players, we looked at Satan last week, uh, and we saw... Exactly that he is the enemy of God, that he is not omniscient, he's not omnipresent. Uh, if Satan is here in this room right now, uh, then that means he is not, believe it or not, at the Staples Center. He is confined to a place at a time. The demons, the fallen angels, a third of the angels that have fallen, are the ones and so these spiritual beings. It is interesting, in the scripture, you have angels being able to enter this time-space continuum. And flesh out, if you will. Remember Abraham talking to the angels? In fact, Hebrew says be very kind to people. You have no idea if you might be entertaining an angel. I always tell people that when they're meeting with me. Uh, but it's interesting, we have no record of the demons ever being able to do that. There's no biblical record of the fallen angels being given this authority or power to be able to put on flesh within our time and space. Uh, does Jesus believe in demons? Yes. Does Jesus believe demons are in everything? No. Does Jesus believe healings all the time can have demonic problems? Yes. Does he think it is all the time? No. So we need to have the eyes of Christ as he discerns these things. But we take a look at tonight, and we'll um, kind of obviously uh, wrap this up. Oh, and I might also say to you, somebody came up. She bought this ticket, and this is one of the hottest tickets to get in town. It's for the side-splitting comedy this Saturday night over here in the chapel at 7.30 to 9.30. She's already paid for it, and it's available to any of you that want it. In fact, we'll give you a front seat. So if uh, Bob Lee is doing comedy with the other group, I almost forgot that. That has nothing to do with Satan. Okay. Uh, and don't tell, don't tell Bob I lumped him in with a discussion on that. Uh, it's funny comedy. Okay. Turn with me over. The question is, what happens to the church in the last act? Uh, if you got your Bibles there, turn with me over. Let's first of all take a look at where does Jesus use the word church? Turn with me over to Matthew 16. It's on page 798 in your pew Bible. And 
Of course, this is the great confession of Christ. And starting in verse 18, excuse me, the 16th chapter, 16, 18, he says, And I tell you, you are Petra, and upon this Petros I will build my, what? Church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, that's the first time that we find here, uh, Matthew alone uses Jesus speaking of the church. Paul becomes the great interpreter of Jesus to the world, and he talks about what Jesus left was his body, you and me. Ecclesia means the called out ones. Jesus said, you were not of the world, but I called you out of the world. If I said right here, everybody who was born between January and February, would you stand? Everybody, anybody born in January and February? All right, see? I call them out so we don't have to give them a birthday present. All right, thank you. Those are called out ones. Did you see that? They were, they're amongst you, but they are called out. Christ said, I have called you out. And the question is, he calls us out. Then what he do with us? He sends us right back in. If you are trying to avoid the world, you have to fight against Jesus. He didn't hang on this cross and shed his blood so that you and I can avoid the world. He's told us to go into all the world and make the disciples of all the nation. So the question is, what happens to the church in the very last act? I'm using the word last act because the last deal of the card of world history as we know it. Okay, uh, turn with me over to Matthew 24, as long as you're in Matthew. It's on page 806, you should have there. And what happens to the church in the last act is it goes through a time of testing and purifying through trials, great trials. And starting in verse 15, uh, let's go ahead and read this together, okay? And if uh, you don't like to read, just hum, I'll fly away in the background, so we'll do that. So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place that was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountaintops. The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. Pause. Okay. What's he talking about? He's saying the desolating sacrilege spoken by the prophet Daniel. What does Matthew assume that you know what Jesus is, that you've read before? Daniel, remember? The unlocking the book of Revelation is the Old Testament. Daniel, which we're going to take a look at, spoke of this desolating sacrilege. And to be sacrilegious, what is that? How could I be sacrilegious? Yeah, denying that God exists, taking his name in vain. Uh, if I came up and took a communion and I threw it on the floor, or I took a bite and spit it out, uh, or if I mocked baptism... That's being sacrilege. You are taking what is sacred and making it profane. Desolating is the great destroyer. And Daniel talked about this desolating sacrilege which was going to come. We're going to take a look at Now, when he says, when you see this, let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Does that mean that if we see this, we should get on El Al? What's the mountains represent? What would the Iraqi people in Baghdad like to do right now? Yeah, being get out of town. It's not saying go go to Judea. It's saying when you see it, there's there's terrible things coming. The one on the house stop must not go down and get in the house. Why is that? Yeah, you, no, there's no time. Go 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 go. You see this action he's saying. The one in the field don't go back and get a coat. What should you do? Aloha, oi, you're out of there. Why? Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing. Exactly, it slows them down. I don't know that it does, but does it, ladies? If you're carrying an infant, does it slow you down or not? I wouldn't know as a father because I never held them. Uh, but I'm no, just kidding. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. Why not Shabbat? Yeah, there's no transportation. Uh, everything is slowed down, and these are the laws around. Everything is shut down or in winter. His point being, when you see the desolating sacrilege, bad, bad, <laughs> go, 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 get out of town. Okay, verse 21. Let's read this together. For at that time there will be great suffering, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no one should be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, 
Or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, remember we talked about apocalyptic literature. It's like a holy political cartoon. It's painting, there is rich imagery, and some, there's a lot of symbolism, but there's also a lot of literalism, and the challenge is to know which is which. It's always authoritative, though. The biblical categories are the final categories. So he is saying, when you see this desolating sacrilege, get out of there. What will the times be like in verse 21? The worst in world history. There has never been times like it, and there never will be again. And in fact, if they had not been cut short, what would happen? Everybody would have been destroyed. But for the sake of who are they cut short? The elect. Yeah, what, what's this elect thing? Which election? And then he talks about for the great leading astray, the great apostasy. You might write on your paper over here why going through great times of testing and trials is there is the great falling away or the great apostasy. Apostasy means to speak against. If I have never become a, let's say before I'd really given my life to the Lord and I said, you know, Jesus is not the son of God. He's just a teacher and Christians are just flaky people. That's called wrong or heretic. If heresy is truth out of balance. If as a, now that I've known the Lord, I now speak against that which I once proclaimed, that's apostasy. Does that make sense to you? So where does apostasy have to come from? The church. So there's this great apostasy that, that comes up from within. Well, if it was just the foreign other religions, that's not apostasy. That's heresy. That's false religion. Apostasy has to come from speaking against uh, that which you once proclaimed. So there's these terrible trials that go on. Now, what, have any of you been around a lightning storm? Have you ever been hit or close? <laughs> have you been hit by lightning? No. Uh, have you ever had a hit real close to you? How, how hard is it to tell if it's there? His point being, you know, people will say, the Messiah's over there. He's going, trust me on this one. It's going to be really fast, and it's going to be really clear. When I come back, it'll be about as obtuse as when lightning toasts the dog next to you. <laughs> Nobody's going to miss this one. And so when I come back, don't let anybody lead you astray. There's many false prophets. Then this thing about where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. Then he talks about, uh, look, verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as this branch comes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer's near. Remember, the fig tree always represents Israel and Jesus' teachings. And in the Old Testament, from the 8th century prophets, Amos and, and others spoke of that. So when you see spring coming, it means heads up. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away till these things have been taken place. Someone asked me, why do I say after scripture, where did you ever get that? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's saying that this is true. So true, you can't ever take it for granted. This generation, the Greek word for this, autos, or hutos, depending if you put the rough on that, means what this previous thing I was just talking about. If I went, uh, the chairs, the pews, the piano, these things need to be moved. I just referred to something I was just talking about. So in the, the Greek here, it's saying this generation that sees this. In other words, it's not the generation that Jesus is speaking, though there was a little fulfillment in that with his resurrection and his glorification. But it will take place in one generation. It's not going to take millennium for this to take place. So the church, it looks like, is going, but look at verse 36. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Sorry, I can't set a date. For as the days of Noah will, were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. You ever think of that? Somebody paid money for a reception on the day the flood came. Is that a bummer or what? 
Maybe there's some excited in-laws, I don't know. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? What kind of image is he giving? Is it what? Yeah, no warning. What kind of a day is it when Christ comes back? It's a normal day. It's a normal day. You know, you put on your socks. When Christ returns, there'll be traffic on 405. You know, and, you know, Starbucks will probably still be around. Uh, I haven't connected it totally to the Antichrist, but... Um, and, and it's just a normal day. And just like it wasn't, no, no big thing. You know what? The day you breathe your last day, odds are, it's going to be a normal day. It could be very different. That's the, the terrible horror of cancer is also its beauty. You get a warning. Your train is pulling out. The first signs normally of heart condition is sudden death. You know, and so you don't have any warning with that or an accident. With cancer, you're kind of told, I might be leaving now. And so that's, that's, that's the terrible thing with those of us that have had loved ones that have died of cancer. You get to fight, but yet you're kind of told that. Well, here he's saying it's just a normal day. Just like a Noah. Then he does it. Now watch this one. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken. One will be left. Keep awake, therefore. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand if the owner of the house had known on what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Here's the point. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. One thing I think you can take this to the bank. The moment the whole world says we're in the last days, you know you're not. It will be as a thief in the night. Now, how can it be a thief in the night and going through all these terrible traumas? Have we adjusted as a world to unbelievable conflict and crisis and terror? I remember when I first became a Christian back in 1971 and gave my life to the Lord. Everybody knew it was the last days that because of Israel, Christ was going to come back before 1948, certainly before the year 2000. And I want to tell you the things that were going on there, though it wasn't hardly a picnic basket, are nothing compared to now. And then the Antichrist was a computer in Europe. Have you heard of that? The beast and had a number on everybody. Uh, but what you walk now, if you turned on everybody, would say, the world's flying apart. I've shared before, I saw an interview of, of a German guard at Treblinka, one of the death camps. And his job was to pour the cyanide capsule tablets on the women and children that were screaming. And they were asking him. And have you ever saw Shoah uh, from Auschwitz and one of the interviews from that? And they asked him, and this is the thing that shocked me so much. They said, how could you do that? And he said something that I think stick with me the rest of my life. He said, you can get used to anything. You can. You can get used to waking up every morning and taking the lies of hundreds, if not thousands, of women and children screaming. You can do that and clock out and go back to sleep at night. So the point is the world can adjust to any kind of darkness, but it'll seem like a a normal day. Well, the church goes through this great purifying. Turn with me over to Revelation 13. And we'll take a look. We'll have to fast forward here just a little bit. Is the church in the last days or not what we're moving towards? And last days, yes. Is the church there in the, we'll find out this great tribulation or not. Revelation 13, and starting up in verse 7. This is talking about this great beast. Remember we talked about the false trinity, the three, the dragon, the first beast, and the second beast that we talked about with Satan can't do anything original. He's always impersonating God, imitating God. Now notice, this is the very last act, the last deal of the card in world history. And what happens here? Verse 7. Also it, meaning the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was given authority over tribe and people and language and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. Let anyone as an ear listen. If you're going to be taken captive, into captivity you go. If you kill the sword, you will die with the sword. Here's a call for the what? Endurance and faith of the saints. You're not going to change what is written, what has happened. It's prophesied. It's going to happen. But here you see that this beast is pouring out wrath on who? Yeah, the good guys, the church. And he's allowed to make war on the church. Why would God allow that? And as uh, probably as 
Roger was teaching you that there's going through these trials, it's a purifying. All right? Flip with me over to 1 Peter 1. We're going to do a lot of passages tonight. But just in case you think I'm making this up, I'll read this. 1 Peter 1. Peter, as he's writing this, they're starting to go through persecution. Now Peter's writing uh, probably about 55, maybe 58 A.D., and people, I'm sorry, page 983. Yes, everybody has this. And he's talking about this living hope that we have in Christ. And then he says all of a sudden in verse 6. Do you see that? It's halfway down in the paragraph there. Let's read this together. 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, even if for now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold that, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Even though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, what's the purpose of trials? What's it purify? What did he just say there? Your, yeah, your faith. How can you have impure faith? Well, how, what's an impure faith like? What does faith mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's the conviction of something not seen. It's something to trust, right? When you sat down in those pews, you had total faith it would hold you. You've had good experiences with pews, all right? You didn't say, can you sit here for me first? I'll just watch and see what happens. You have faith in that pew. That's what it means to settle your weight into that. What's impure faith? Yeah, how would you sit in that pew if you didn't really trust it? Yeah, you'd be holding the pew in front of you or grabbing somebody's ear next to you or something, you know. You're saying, I trust you a little bit. Old story of the old guys riding an airplane for the first time. They said, Grandpa, how'd it go? And he says, fine, but to tell you the truth, I didn't trust it. I didn't put my weight down the whole flight. <laughs> What's the silliness of that? I mean, it's carrying him anyway. Impure faith means you have faith in the wrong things or you really don't have faith. You're either trusting yourself or you're trusting your theology or you're trusting your pastor or you're trusting your outline book or you're trusting your money. Or you say you trust God, but you don't really trust Him. So how does God purify that? How do you think? He says, He kicks out the supports. He goes, jump, I'll catch you. And we go, oh, I don't know, I don't know. And what does He say? He just makes a wind go, and you blow down, and you're falling, and He catches you. And then we always say, I knew I always trusted you. The only way for you and I to be tested in our faith, you ready, is when you have no way to see the way out. And Bel Air, if we're going to be tested, that means we're going to have come up and get times where we don't see the way out except the Lord. And get ready for this. Then the world starts to crank up the way our faith grows. And faith is a gift. He gives gift, but it's a gift that must be used and received or you lose it is to say, I keep trusting you. And uh, it's fun to watch what's happening around here. bellar has been so faithful and faithful last 46 years. But as we move a little more out of our comfort zones, a little bit more and start trusting God more and more with larger things, that's great. And you know why you would do that? Because you think this is big stuff. We're in a little bubble right now. No, I should say a very big bubble. And God is going to test us, not because he's angry at us, but so that we can receive glory when we stand before him. I want to show you how, turn with me over to Revelation 7. What happens to the church? It goes through a time of testing and purifying through trials. That's why God allows these great heretics, these great apostasy, the falling away. Do you really want to know the truth or you just want to know what sounds nice to you? How much homework do you do when I speak? How much homework do you do when somebody else says something? Sounds good? Great. You check it out. I'm not saying be a skeptic on everything, or worse, a cynic. There is no truth out there. But you need, we need to be big boys and girls and to check that out. So he allows that. But there's something else. The church conquers. This is great. Chapter 7. You might not like it, but it's part of the Bible. Uh, let's read verses 13 through 17 together uh, out loud. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, 
Who are these robed in white? And where have they come from? Pause, I'm sorry. The scene is, remember John's getting these flashes of eternity in front of him, these little snapshots, and there's this great gathering. And he says, who are these? They're all clothed in white. All right, verse 14. I said to him, sir, you're the one that knows. Then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship Him day and night within His temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter Him. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now what do you mean they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb? You think? Yeah. Christ's sacrifice, they're cleansed by His righteousness, and we're going to find out, and they're following Him. They overcome because they love not their lives, even unto death. The way you win in the book of Revelation is you are faithful unto death. The word martyrios, martyr, means witness. Why do you was that associated? Why does martyr mean somebody who dies? The word means the... The martyrios, when you went into a court of law, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but truth, so help me, God, did you see this? Yes, that word is martyrios. Why did it come to mean somebody who died? What were they witnesses to? Yeah, to Jesus Christ, to their faith. They died for their faith. So how you overcome in the book of Revelation is loving not your life even unto death. Yeah, I don't like that ending either. But God does, because we're going to see what he comes brings out of this. So their victory through their sacrificial faith. Now, there's a lot of debate on lots of things on this. As I said, I uh, would never claim to be an expert on eschatology, on, and there are so many different versions, and everybody's got the latest paperback, and you can buy videos and everything. But I just want to give you some broad brush strokes. Real quick, I want to show you some Old Testament imagery. When does Christ return for his bride? Because that we know. He said, I'm coming back. Turn over to Daniel, the uh, seventh chapter. Now, this is obviously long before Christ. And Daniel, uh, the original Daniel, of course, was during the Babylonian captivity. You remember the story. This is about 500 B.C. I think there is a later writer that comes along and helps edit what happened to Daniel. The first six chapters is about Daniel's life. The last six chapters are this bizarre apocalyptic imagery that goes on. And here in uh, Daniel 7, there's this vision of these four beasts. In the first year, I'm sorry, page 724, I should have said that. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and a vision of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched its wings were plucked off. And of course, now that, let me jump ahead. A lot of people think this is the prophecy of Babylon. Because that was one of the signs. Uh, this is actually New Babylon. Old Babylonia comes during the time right after the Sumerians. Never mind. Hammurabi, never mind. Uh, this is Babylon. And it's a picture of this great beast. The next one he talks about, uh, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground, made to stand on two feet like a human being. Human mind is given to it. Verse 5, another beast appeared, a second one, it looked like a bear. Most people think that's probably the Medes, because the Medes used the imagery of the bear who, remember, conquered the Babylonians. God wrote his finger on the wall tonight. Your kingdom is judged and found in wanting in the Medes. And they stopped up the uh, sewer system and came in and sacked the impregnable Babylon. Which, by the way, do you know where that is? Baghdad. <laughs> uh, where this took place. I mean, not exactly on Baghdad, but close to that area right there. And it devoured everything. Verse 6, after this I watched another beast. It was like a leopard. And the idea about the leopard they thought was Greece. Because remember how fast a leopard is. And Alexander never intended on conquering the world. He was just kicking Darius's family around the known world. And everywhere he went, uh, he, he took over. So a fast one. But then the, the final one. After this I saw the vision of a fourth beast. Terrifying and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. with was devouring, breaking, and stamping what was left with its feet. And that's the Roman Empire. So that was the, the interpretation that these four beasts prophesied uh, ahead of time.
By the way, when Alexander the Great came riding into Jerusalem, Jews were always so clever with this. Uh, they win whether they lose, whether they win. When Alexander came riding up, they came running out to him and said, because he was, you know, they didn't like the Greeks, you were prophesied. And he said, what? And they turned to this prophecy and said that you were prophesied. And Alexander said, I like you boys. You know that? So he gave them a lot of favor in that way. So they had said that you had been prophesied. Now, there's over here these 70 weeks. Look in the ninth chapter. This is where everybody really gets into maps. and He divides world history up into these 70 weeks. You see that, page 727? In fact, the Holy Spirit has written the 70 weeks. No, I'm kidding. That's, that's not inspired. But it's a description, and it's right. While I was speaking, I was praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, proclaiming my supplication, God speaks to him. Look at verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Seventy weeks of world history he's talking about. Know therefore and understand from the time of the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Remember who that was under? Under Nehemiah. Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. said you can go back and rebuild it. To the coming of the anointed one there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks it will be built up again with streets and moat but in time of trouble. 69 weeks. So the people that are really into numerology, and it might be true... I wouldn't, you know, go to the wall on it. Some people are really into the numerology and everything fits together. Somehow there is a system within this and God wouldn't have revealed it if he wasn't trying to say something. But the point being that there's this period of time that takes place. And then after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, you know the Hebrew for that? Mashiach, Messiah. That's what Messiah means. Will be cut off. Do you know what cut off means? Killed. And have nothing, and the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. In other words, Jerusalem shall be sacked by the pagans. And shall come with a flood to the end. The desolation decreed, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. For half of the week he shall make sacrifice and offer seeks. And then the place of an abomination, the sacrilege, which Jesus spoke of, until the decree end is poured out. So what in the world is this? Well... From the time to rebuild Jerusalem, there are 69 weeks until the Messiah. Then the Messiah is killed. And then, the one who is to come, there's a final week of world history. Seven years. These are 69 sevens. That's where the seven years of tribulation you hear about comes from. How is it broken up there? How is the last week broken up? Yeah, three and a half and three and a half. So I don't know if you've heard of that or not. This is what's called the time of tribulation, the great tribulation that you just heard Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24. How bad is it? No one's seen it yet, and there never would be. And if God didn't intervene, what would happen? All flesh would be gone in that place. Okay, so what we're building here, well, okay, Mark, but what happens? Ezekiel talks about the tribes of the north. You don't have to look at it. You can't later, 38. Gog and Magog always means the enemies from the north. Come down, they surround Jerusalem. God somehow miraculously destroys them. And somehow God reveals himself who he is as the Messiah, the anointed one. And so that's where a lot of people today would say that Russia will come down and attack Israel and somehow that Jesus is revealed to them in that way. Again, I don't know about that. That's an interpretation of it. This I know, that Daniel and Ezekiel are talking about the kingdom is going to come in this imagery. You see that? Okay, let's jump over. What is the New Testament? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. There's a lot of imagery for the return of Christ. It's spoken of over 320 times in the New Testament. Someone said, you know, why, why do you teach about this stuff if nobody knows for sure? Well... If God talks about it 300 times in the New Testament alone, I guess he thought it was fairly important. But, this is what you need to know. It wasn't just for the last generation. It was for every generation that's lived since then. It meant something to the first hearers. It means something to you and I. It means a lot to you and I. Well, we'll find out what it meant to the first hearers, and that is not to worry. God will take care of it. 
First Thessalonians 4, page 960. Yeah, that verse 13. The coming of the Lord. Let's read this together out loud. 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Just a moment. Paul taught them that Christ was coming back, we know. And they are excited, but Paul went away on another missionary trip, and in the meantime, their family died. And they went, bummer! They're dead after they became Christians. So when Jesus comes back, they miss out. Because the Jewish view of death is, who knows for sure? Who knows for sure? And I want to tell you, the Gentile view of death, which the Thessalonians are, is they go to the shades, you know, the Greek view of death, and they'll never bring, and they go, oh, and Paul goes, oh, you guys, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have died. Notice there you're allowed to grieve, but as those who have no hope, when you lose a loved one, yes, cry, and cry hard. Death is the last great enemy. The moment you say, I'll never see them again, God says you stepped over the line. Now you're not in reality anymore. You will see them again. You do have a hope. Okay? Verse 14. Let's read this. I won't interrupt anymore. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's the word caught up is the Latin rapturios, the word you've heard of the rapture. It's not really found in the Bible. It's from the Latin. So what's Paul's view? What happens when you die? Right there. Are you left out of it? No. What happens? We who are alive, are we going to precede those who have died in front of us? No. What happens next? The Lord himself comes back. What's he come back with, by the way? Yeah, a cry of command. The archangels call and the what? The shofar. Yeah, the call of the trumpet of God will descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will do what? Rise first. So they kind of beat whoever's the last generation. And that's called the parousia. The parousia is when a king was coming. The Greek word, and you ran out to meet the king. Oh, you know, uh, someone said, were some of the troops greeted today by people in the street? They're doing a parousia. They're running out and welcoming. And so when Christ returns, we don't, we run out. How do we greet him? The ultimate jump. <laughs> we go up and we meet, and so the dead in Christ, we go up to meet Christ to bring him and to usher him back in as the rightful king of this world. All the graves, all those we'll see in Revelation, we won't have time tonight. All the sea will give up its dead. All those that are in Christ will resurrect in the great resurrection and go up to meet the Lord. Perfect bodies are given at the resurrection, Jesus said. Some to everlasting life, others to everlasting judgment at his return. And that then we come back to begin and to usher in the eternal state and the real adventure begins. Paul says, when you lose a loved one, it's terrible. Grieve. And I want to tell you, one of the tough things about Americans, we don't let people grieve. And I would say as a Christian, when a friend loses a loved one or you do, let them grieve. It's okay. You know, nothing is worse than oh, they're in a better place. Every time I hear that, if I've lost love, I always say, can I send you there with them? <laughs> that is not comforting to hear. Is it true? Yes. So let them hurt. Let them grieve. The moment... They start to say there is no hope. And this takes, everybody agrees in their own time. Then you have to say, no, let me tell you what the hope is. That we will be with Christ. The longer I get away from uh, some of my family who has died and uh, loved ones and friends. You know, it's funny. I think they're farther away. Do you know every day I'm a day closer to seeing them again forever? And so are you. That every day is moving this way, not away. And so we have something to do, so we encourage each other. Matthew 24, we just read Paul, or I mean, Jesus talked about the thief in the night. 
Paul talks about the Titus, we have this great blessed hope. John talks about the, let us abide in him and purify ourselves now, so that we do not shrink from him in shame. Do you know everybody? Oh, we got to look at this one. Okay, I'm sorry. Turn over to 1 John. For Christians, not for the, when the world comes back, we saw in the book of Revelation that they weep with woe. Uh, and they just mourn the return of Christ. But do you know, for Christians, on page 990, I think it is, 1 John 2, 28, yes, 990. Even for some Christians, though Christ return, though they're saved, and we saw in 1 Corinthians 3, as though through fire the works will be tested, it's a bummer day. And now, little children, let's read this together. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. There are some Christians that are going to, when Christ appears, go, What was I doing? And Jesus will say, That's a very good question. We'll have time to talk. I'll get back to you. (laughs) That this is for the saved. That, you know, that we weren't abiding with him. And so we need to walk with him and let him dwell in us. And not a thing about earning our salvation at all. But when he comes back, a lady's house who burned down saw everything and she was cursing the fire and beating the front lawn. And she was saying, I've lost everything. And you know what? She had. She was living for that house. And whatever you can't let go of, you know... That's when we stand before. What if you went before the Lord? I have someone asked me one time, with what you were thinking about the minute before. What if it could physically appear and it went with you? I mean, some people would be standing there, you know what, with piles of money. Other people would be standing there finally with somebody else's husband or wife. Some people would be standing there with the door of their BMW, you know, uh, whatever it was. But good thing you know that doesn't happen. The point is with the heart, what needs to go is as we go. Don't become ascetical. Don't say we're going to become monks and... Leave everything, but make sure that we're abiding in him. All right. Um, See, since we cannot know the chronological time, what about the sequential time? Can we tell what events take place first? Let me tell you right ahead of time. Not really, but, (laughs) I mean, yes, you can size some things up. And some people have perfect made-out theologies, and they work well. And there's other theologies that are totally contrary to that, and they hold together well. But if you take a look here at... The millennium. Turn over to Revelation 20. Getting ready to tie this all together. Page 1007. What is this whole millennial thing about? Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and the great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? thousand years threw him into the pit and locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the what thousand years reign. i want you to be counting these that he must be let out for a little while then i saw thrones and those seated on them were given authority to judge i saw the souls who had been headed for their testimony to jesus and the word of god they had not worshiped the beast or its image or received its mark on their forehead or their hands they came to life and reigned with christ a thousand years and the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God in Christ, and they will reign with Him a thousand years. Where is that mentioned? (laughs) Revelation 20. Now, I want to say that I think the millennium, as far as our theologies, has gotten way too much press. It's in God's Word, and so we need to listen to it and obey it. But people literally divide fellowships over this. And the question is, we saw before, are you pre-millennial, that Christ comes back before the millennium? Are you post-millennial, that Christ comes back after the church ushers in a thousand years of golden age? Or are you all-millennial? That means the millennium probably is not an actual thousand-year reign. So, the question is, well, what takes place first? I honestly could go pre-millennial, Christ coming back. I couldn't go post-millennial because I just don't see the church. If you look at the track record of the church for the last 2,000 years, as far as ushering in the kingdom where there's no longer any sin, wouldn't bet on that pony. (laughs) 
you know, just as I watched the church for the last 2,000 years, or probably I'm more amillennial, that this is probably not a literal thousand years, and this is where I'm very evangelical, but I'm very reformed, and so I step out of camp, if you will. I think this thousand years, and I would never go to the wall on this, but it's probably right. But I think this thousand years, I don't know that for sure, is symbolic. Just like we saw in Revelation 13, or 12, excuse me, remember Satan and the beast showed all of history and the woman. I think this means from the glorification of Christ until his coming back. What is What takes place in here, if you'll notice, is this binding of Satan. Remember, Jesus said, you shall bind Satan, whatever you bind shall be bound, whatever you loose, loose. He said to his disciples, that's by the power of the gospel. Is Satan still alive and active in this world? Yes. But remember, he's a lion on a leash. But right before Christ comes back, he is totally let go. And we saw last week, he fills a man, the son of perdition. And now he ushers in this terrible time of tribulation. And Satan is allowed now to rule the way he's always wanted to rule in this world. And then I think Christ comes back and uh, finishes Satan off and he's, he's bound. So I think this is a picture, personally, of what the church age is going through. And that's the only way I can work with the... Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. And who were they? They were the ones who were beheaded during the time of the church age or the, the, the tough times going on. And... Over them, the second, what's the second death? Do you remember? Red Revelation? The lake of fire. Death, remember, separation. They are thrown away from God and they are banished from Him forever. It has no power over them, but they reign a thousand years. Well, if you're not in this first resurrection, that means you're in the judgment. So that's why I think that this millennial is, I don't know that it's a literal thousand year reign. It may be, and if it is, I'm going to be there. And maybe Satan is released at the end to come and test people's work, which is another theory there. But what is it, um, what, what's happening to the church? Okay, last thing. Turn with me over to Revelation 3.10. Revelation 3.10 on page 996. So we've been talking about the saints. Well, when does Christ come for the church? We know that he comes back. We saw that. You know, we all ascend to meet him and greet him, the appearing of Christ. You have that there? It starts out, I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door. I can open, no one can shut. I know you have a little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews but are not in lying. I'll make them come down bound before your feet. Learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now the question is, what does that word keep from? The Greek is tereo ek. Ek means out. That's why we have ex it, a Greek influence there, the, the way out. Tereo means to keep out. Now that could mean, what would that mean if you, on the first reading of that? That how would Jesus keep you from the trial? He would take you. Yeah, he'd take you. He'd say, come up here to me, you don't need to be tried or tested. And that very well may be. Let's see how John also uses this word. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John in the 17th chapter. Since John is the author of Revelation, let's see how he uses his page 879. Verse 15, I'm sorry, page 880. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer, which he is praying in the garden. And he's going to use the uh, same words here. In 17:15, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect. What's interesting is, the word protect is tereo ek. That's how the new RSV deals with this. He's saying, I'm not, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you what? Take them through. You protect them from the evil one. So if that's so, then the church in Philadelphia is not told you're going to be removed from world history, but I'm going to take you through this, and I will be with you. And you belong to me. Don't be afraid. So the bottom line is, if is Christ going to come back? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Is it going to be physical? 
Yes. Are you going to be there? Yes. I hope so. Yes. You're definitely going to be there. You don't need to worry. Christ is coming back physically. If Jesus doesn't come back to this earth physically, even though he hasn't been here for almost 2,000 years, you and I are the biggest suckers of all time. If he died and resurrected and they didn't physically ascend to another time-space dimension into the presence of the Father, you and I have been taken beyond what Barnum and, and Bailey ever longed for. We're fools. Paul said we're moronious. What do you think word we get from that? Morons. If Christ is not resurrected and alive. But he is physically coming back someday. And when he comes back, nobody's going to miss it. We pick up that before he comes back, there's terrible times. That... How, who knows how long it is, whether it's the seven years. Who is the Antichrist? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I can remember preaching on this back in the uh, 80s. Everybody thought it was uh, Gorbachev. You know, but if that's so, I said the 666 must have smeared on his forehead. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, I don't. Every, you see, a lot of people thought Hitler was the Antichrist. But you know what? Not as many as you think. Go read the preaching of the pulpits in America in the 1940s, and eschatology was not a huge thing. Wouldn't you have thought Adolf Hitler of anybody? Because of how the, the power and how they worshipped him and who was like him and stuff. But it's interesting. Uh, the church, even Bonhoeffer, uh, who was killed under Hitler, didn't think he was, an, he was an evil man. Definitely. Well, when the Antichrist shows up, he's going to have all world power because now God has let Satan finally do his last play. Will it come before the tribulation, pre-tribulation? Will it come in the middle? It might. Because Paul told the Thessalonians, which you can look up later, don't be afraid saying that you've supposedly missed it because the man of lawlessness hasn't been revealed. In other words, you would see the Antichrist. Or God might take us through it, like he took his children through Israel, through the uh, Israel, through the trials of the plagues. Remember in Egypt? They were protected, weren't they, over in Goshen? But they were there. What did they do when they went into exile? God went with them. What happened when they went into the wilderness? God went with them all the time sifting. Did the disciples have a tough go of it? Yeah. I had somebody come up last week and say afterwards, oh, they were kind of angry but very perplexed. Because Sunday I was preaching, I talked about this uh, a wonderful Arab girl uh, in Pakistan that became a Christian and her friend brought her to Christ and they executed her friend the family did and now that she's suffering and this and this uh, three young people said how can you stand there and tell me to trust God when Christ would let her go through that isn't that a good question very good question and I just told him if you don't want your boat to rock don't ask Jesus to get in it but you don't let Jesus in your boat you're going over the falls I didn't write it. I didn't come up with it. God himself did. God does let Christians suffer. But you know what I can tell you? My life before a Christian didn't have one-tenth of the hassles I have now. I, I mean that. And I wouldn't trade two minutes of it for it. I, is it getting high fun? Yes. Is just partying fun? Yes. Is lying, stealing, and cheating fun? If you do it right. <laughs> Honestly, you know, the idea that sin doesn't have pleasure, that's crazy. It has a lot of pleasure. Is being mean at others that hurt you, smacking them back twice as hard? Yeah. And it is nothing, nothing compared to the peace of walking with Christ. So, Belair, the good news is if, if God takes us into trial times, how much does he trust us to be strong on ourselves? <laughs> None. How much does he trust him to be strong through us? Totally, all the way. The bottom line is, what does it mean for all of us and really to us? Is we need to be encouraged and confident in God's sovereignty. God is in control. Period. He is sovereign. I can't understand all the time, but nothing goes by without God seeing. Jesus said today, I got some birds that get up every morning and wake me up, and I pray they would fall to the ground someday. Uh, but God said not a one of these single crows will fall. <laughs> Jesus did, a sparrow, without my Father's will. And he said, the very hairs on your head are numbered. You are so precious to him. There are no coincidences in the Christian's life. 
God is using all things. It's not determinism, but he's totally sovereign. And he says, as you watch the world go this way, stay there. Second of all, keep pure and filled up with the fruit of the Spirit as we prepare for that day. It's really easy. It is interesting that, in you know, what takes the world away and why they follow the Antichrist is not just false teaching, but false teaching that talks to, if you read in the seven churches, which Roger took you through, sexual impurity and money. Your wallet and your zipper. It's amazing. If you learn, that's what takes the world to hell. Wouldn't you think it'd be something new and creative? They're just greedy and horny. That's it. And literally, it takes them. I'm serious. Wouldn't you think, I always thought that as you grew up, you had bigger, new kind of temptations. No. It's all bitterness of the heart. The dangerous ones are of the spirit. Pride and self-righteousness and saying, I don't need God and I have it all figured out. But why we need to keep pure in our hearts. And you know what? I can't be pure unless I'm with you. And you and I can't keep pure unless we go mix it up with the world, believe it or not. The more we isolate ourselves from the world, being out there and telling the good news of Christ with all the people that are lost, and when you're connected together, it's a cleansing process. Because you see how stupid the world is. And God releases the Holy Spirit, the fruit, into your life more. Isn't it amazing when you look out there? Cannot that valley be just choked with smog so you can't even see the end of the parking lot? And one rain and one fresh storm... And it is, isn't God's cleansing remarkable? It's that way in our personal lives. The more you mix it up out there, by, but you gotta stay connected and in His Word, the more we're ready for that day. And the last thing is, you keep the task at hand. Someone asked, uh, uh, I believe it was Benedict, yeah, when he was first starting his order, what if Christ were gonna come back? This was like about 700 or so. What would you do? Because he was, they were monks and they were hoeing and he, he was hoeing peas. And they said, if Christ would come back tonight, what would you do, Benedict? And he said, I'd finish this row of peas. And he meant that. If Christ were going to come back tomorrow, what would you do? What we should be doing is you'd say, well, I'd set my alarm. I'd get up. I'd go about my day. So when he said, now it's time. I just go into his presence. God doesn't want you going off on the hillside. God doesn't want you as the Millerites, those in the 1800s who set dates, um, which later came out, the Adventists and Jehovah Witness. Uh, the Adventists stayed theologically sound in Christology and thing, but it's very eschatologically driven. Seventh-day Adventists is all about what? The 144,000 uh, in the book of Revelation, they're saved. Of course, they got a problem because they number several million. But there's 144,000. I guess they have a big wrestle-off at the end. Uh, they're the only ones who are saved. But the, all the, And one of the things end-time groups always do is you get a can of beans and a gun and you liquidate your mortgage and give it to the church. I always wonder that. Why do you do that? Like you can't get into heaven if you have a mortgage? I have no idea or not. Well, that's crazy. That's crazy. God says, no, you get up in the morning, you go to work, you make the calls, you drop a note, and you trust me in the middle of the day that if I need you doing something else, I'll move you. If I need you over here, I'll move you. If I need you to say something, I'll prompt you of what to say. And then we get ready, like I say, you dance until dawn, because dawn is coming. Great news. So... There is a shortened version of eschatology, and hopefully it gave you enough questions that you say, I want to study it, because Mark doesn't have a clue, <laughs> but at least you, you understand that there are some real solid truths that we know in there, and that the Lord is sovereign, and that His church is precious, and it is unstoppable. Amen? Amen. All right. Why don't we just close in a word of prayer? Lord... I thank you that when we take a look into these things, that we need to come humbly before you. And Lord, I thank you that you would not have told them to us if you didn't want us to know. And if you didn't want us to study. And we thank you that you've told us that though we can never know the exact day, that you've told us the way that things are going to go. And above all, not to worry that you're in control. I thank you, Lord, for my brothers and my sisters, Lord, those of us who belong to you. 
I pray, Lord, for those that don't know you tonight, and as the world goes wackier and wackier, that we could be able to just plant the seed of the good news of Christ. God, continue to help Bel Air to grow. Keep us pure. Keep us on track. Thank you for the men and women that have gone before that we're going to celebrate with all eternity. But thank you most of all for your son. This time of the year, Lord, may we realize the new Jerusalem is coming, and you're just going to deliver it. And it's in your name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.